Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Poretz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission is to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams and with my coaching help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com and you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash coachandrew. Now, before I get started tonight, I'd like to thank all the people who've been listening to my show for the last over a year and downloading it every week. Tonight is my 50th show, and to date, well over 11,000 people have listened to an episode of Coach's Corner, and I'm, I'm really humbled to tell you that. Now, if you're listening live and you have a question, the phone number here is 646 646- 929-2893. You'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number 1, I'll know you have a question for me. We also have a live chat room right on the show page where you can talk to other, other listeners and ask questions there that I will ask our guest. And our guest tonight is Jeffrey W. Hull, Ph.D., the author of Shift. Jeffrey Hull is a Jungian psychotherapist, executive life coach, an author widely recognized as a pioneer in the fields of performance and life coaching for executives. His clients range from individuals to multinational Fortune 500 corporations. He's been profiled in the New York Times and Investors Business Daily, and he has appeared on national television programs such as Good Morning America. You can learn more about Dr. Hall at www.lifeshifting, life, sorry, that's life-shifting.com. Jeffrey Hull, are you with us? I am. Excellent. Now, now, do I call you Dr. Hull or Jeffrey? I think you can do whatever feels right to you. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, this is this is a you're a very uh, highly qualified individual, and it's very exciting to have you on my show. Oh, it's an honor. Great. It's a pleasure. So you have a quite an. First of all, you have a very extensive resume, as I mentioned a few of the things about you. Now, first of all, did I say this? Is it Jungian psychotherapy? Uh, some people say that. I think it's really Jungian. Say it again. Jungian. Jungian. And what did I say? Jungian. Ah, young, young. Young, young. It depends on whether you do a little bit of a German accent or whether you do the American version. Ah. Well, at least I didn't say Jungian. <laughs> which true. was I really wanted to say that, and I had to really bite my tongue. Well, actually, I couldn't bite it, if I, and then I couldn't say the Y sound. <laughs> no, it's it's the psychology based around the work of Carl Jung, or Carl Jung, depending upon how you right. Well, Carl Jung, if you really have just no cooth whatsoever. Yeah, if you really have no cooth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you're not in that category. Andrew. No, I'm not. But but you know, there's a part of me that wanted to be just for a second. <laughs> And I could lie on the couch and tell you all about it, but why don't you tell us a little bit about that what be, that, that is? That would be the Freudian part of my training. Ah, okay. <laughs> I was just looking for an excuse to lie down on the couch. <laughs> well, you know, unfortunately, they don't really do that anymore these days. Really? But uh, it's pretty rare. I'm sure there are some old standbys that are doing that. Well, I uh, all I know about it is from watching you know movies and television that has. Therapy scenes and it always involves a couch, mm. guy with a beard and a pipe. <laughs> yes, that certainly is the stereotype. 
stove is the stove is your father, you know that kind of thing. But so what, what, what is this? Tell me. Tell, tell us. What is Jungian psychology or Jungian is, psychotherapy? or Both. Well, the psychotherapy, oh, yeah. that's really what, what you're about. Well, at least that's, well, a, that's actually, a part of you. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually a coach these days. Yeah. An executive coach, life coach. I have training. I have a Ph.D. in psychology, so my training is in what we're talking about, the Jungian psychology. But I've actually evolved my practice to be more of a coaching practice. And we can talk about that. As oh, we, that and we will. Out. But, um, yeah, the psychology training is really traditional, analytical, clinical psychology. The Jungian part, I mean, the, for, for those of your listeners and people that are familiar with Carl Jung's work, the, the real emphasis is around things like studying dreams. It's, uh-huh. a, it's a symbolic, it's, it's that part of psychology where they get involved with the unconscious and dream studies. And um, Carl Jung was big in astrology and synchronicity and all of that kind of stuff. So it's like Freudian psychology adding a little bit of the kind of new age mm-hmm. type stuff, the symbolism, unconscious symbolism, things like that. All right. Now, I know for, for Amina, I have participated and trained in so many different types of things over the past 30 years. And everything I've ever done eventually winds up in, in, in how I operate in, in some way, certainly as a coach, and, and informs my coaching. So how does that particular uh, training inform your coaching? Well, that's actually a really good question because I think I, I would have to say I'm exactly the same way. Everything that I've ever trained in has ultimately informed the way that I coach on some level. And in this case, it's really about kind of reading the symbolism. It's like looking under the symptom for what the meaning of it might be. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we all do, we do that as coaches. You know, what you're looking for is you're you're listening into your client for what they're not saying. You know, what's under the words, sure. the emotions, the feelings, some of the hidden things that are either scaring people or they're not aware of or whatever it is that they're that they're saying they can't get in touch with emotionally or intellectually. Mm. So the psychological training is is for ways of looking for those things, you know, the meaning behind symbols, and especially things like dreams. What are your dreams and what are the potential meanings of your dreams? You know, I get very jealous of people who can remember most of the details of dreams, and I have very, very vivid dreams that are like movies, and the moment the alarm hits, it's just gone. And I try to go back, I can't go back. I think that's true for most of us. But isn't it also true that every once in a while, you have a dream that you will never forget? Every once in a while, sure. Yeah, yeah, and those those are powerful. Those are really powerful. So to be able to have a language for understanding some of the symbolism, what it might mean in, in the context of what's going on in your life, that's where the training, that's one example where the training comes in from the Jungian background. And then I have also a lot of, um, say I have a lot of, I have a lot of, what do you call those, um, rec- recurring themes. Yeah. Well, most people do, I think. Most people do. So, 
I mean, and what I try to do is when I'm working with people in a coaching context, I, you know, unlike a therapy situation, I don't necessarily dwell in those things, but I will enter into that dialogue or enter into the investigation around it if it feels like it might be relevant to what's, what the person is working on. It might be relevant to their goals mm. or to their dreams or to something that's stopping them, that kind of thing. So it looks like Shift, and let me give you the full title for everyone, Shift, Let Go of Fear and Get Your Life in Gear. There's a nice rhyme to it. So it looks like Shift had uh, quite a a genesis, and so how did you come to write it? Ah, that's a difficult question. Well, I, I mean, I've been writing for many, many years, so it wasn't new for me to be writing, um, I've written articles, I've written a Ph.D. dissertation, I've written various, um, I wrote a memoir at the time that I left my corporate job mm-hmm. many years ago. So writing is something that I've been doing for a long time, but this was the first time that I've actually crafted an entire program into a book. And I'd have to say that the simple answer to how it came about is that when I finished my Ph.D. as a in psychology and set up as a therapist, I quickly became frustrated with therapy in the traditional mode. And that's where I turned to getting involved with coaching and did a, a number of different trainings around coaching, coach university, and things like that, mm-hmm. which I know you're familiar with. Sure. Because I listened to some of your other conversations. And um, ultimately, I decided I wanted to create a practice that was kind of like the best of both take some of the training that I had in psychology and some of the training I was getting in coaching and create a methodology that would offer people the best of both. And that's where I came up with what I call the life-shifting approach to transformation. And out of that grew the themes and the practices and the techniques that are in the book. So is your, your book, are you, you're referring to it as a program. Now, is a program for somebody to walk themselves through or is it also for somebody to walk someone else through? Ah, it could be both. It could be both. But initially it was basically for someone, it, it was in a way a book for someone who's going through major change or a major transition like a midlife crisis or an upheaval and maybe they couldn't afford to have a therapist. So this is like an armchair coach, mm. you know, an armchair therapist. It's, it's designed to help people move through a major transition in their lives or a major upheaval in their lives by giving them a roadmap to see the stages that everyone goes through in these kinds of changes and also ways to address the anxiety and the fear and the worry and the upset that comes along with it. So have you have you developed any other kinds of um, ways of presenting this? It just seems like it would lend itself very well to like uh, some online thing that would roll out over a period of time. That's all in process. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, book, yeah, I'm definitely doing that. The book just came out in May. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, you're, I, I just started doing workshops. Um, I did a series of workshops for the ICF folks called Coaching Through Fear, which is to help other coaches use this methodology with their clients. And... Um, I'm sorry, I missed that one because this sounds like something I would like to use. Yeah, I mean, it, it was great. I mean, basically, one of the things that we all face as coaches is how do you help your client get through a major mm-hmm. bout of fear? Sure. Right? When they all come up against that. 
So that's part of the process um, that I that I created in the, with the life shifting practices. Is and by the by the way, are you originally Canadian? No, but you're about the fifty thousandth person that's asked me that question. Okay, you have the sound. I'm from Boston. Ah, you have the so, by Boston by way of Canada, eh? Well, you know, parents through Nova came through Nova Scotia. Uh huh. So I don't know if that's the connection. So, well, it's the way you say that the uh, about a uh, uh, bit yeah. boot. It's very Canadian. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where I got it. Uh, so okay, so now I'm going to ask you to define life shifting for us. Define life shifting. Yeah. Any major transition that you go through, where you shift from one type of identity or one way of knowing yourself mm-hmm. into something new. So, for example. We all go through major life shifts when we graduate from school, and one day we, we go from being a student to being a professional. Or we go from being single to being married, or we go from being um, you know, happy-go-lucky adults to a parent. Or on the more difficult, challenge, challenging side of things, we go from being the happily employed professional to being laid off. You know, anytime we go through a major transitional shift in our lives where mm-hmm. one way of knowing ourselves gets kind of pulled out from under us, mm-hmm. I consider that to be a life shift. Okay, so you're talking about shifts when something is, you, you, you're saying, pulled out from under you. So it, it sounds like you're describing shifts that may have a trauma attached to it. Could be, or you could even, or, or it could be something you choose to do. Okay. Like in my case, in my case, in 1995, I decided I'd had enough of the corporate world. I was completely fed up, and um, I quit my job. I didn't have any direct employment. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, and um, I consider that to have been a major life shift. I ultimately became an entrepreneur and started my own consulting company and went back to school and did a whole lot of different things. Mm. But the transition, you know, from being employed to being unemployed. And doing that out of choice was a pretty big life shift, and that was out of, that was one I, that I chose to do myself. I think a lot of times people have them thrust upon them, but in in either case, you're still dealing with the. It's in some ways it's still traumatic, right? Even if you chose it, it's like you may have chosen to get married and have children, but it can still be pretty traumatizing. <laughs> Because now, what what about when it's not? It's just something that's what a, what an amazing thing just happened. In in what sense? Well, well, I'll give you an example. I was actually just talking today with somebody who is responsible for a what I call the major paradigm shift in a, in my self perception when I was a very young man in my I don't know twenty one or so twenty twenty one and. Uh, where uh, somebody had acknowledged me who uh, for I was singing uh, in my fraternity house under let's say to say under the influence, <laughs> and the next day this guy acknowledged me for it and told me that I really should consider singing, hmm. and I had never sung in front of people because I was terrified, mm-hmm. but under the influence I really didn't care, apparently. Now in that moment of this. Acknowledgement. I had a I had a uh, a complete 
paradigm shift in how I looked at myself as somebody who might be able to to do this. And I started singing after that. I took on, I remember being at a university sing and getting up in front of 500 people and my leg was shaking like Elvis. Wow. You know, with a guitar on my knee and it was terrifying. I did it with another person. We were both pretty terrified, but then neither one of us died. Mm-hmm. And from that time on, I was somebody who can sing in front of people. Great. So that was, for me, uh, I, would, I don't know if, you, if that would qualify in what you're speaking of, but that was certainly a major shift. Yeah, I would absolutely call it, call it a life shift. No question. Okay. And there's, a, and, and there's also a certain amount of trauma that was involved. Oh, yeah. It was, a, it was short-lived. It was, yeah. You know, I mean, trauma can be very, you can get hit by a car. That's trauma. But you can live and survive and become a better person out of it. So it yes. doesn't always have to. It doesn't always have to have um, a negative effect down the road. So yeah, um, I would I would totally agree that that was a major life shift for you. I mean, what I'm what I'm pointing to is that before you had that experience, you didn't think of yourself as a singer, right? Mm-hmm. And then after you had that experience, you did think of yourself as a singer. Yes. So that's that's the difference right there. And it's and that's there to this day. To this day, I am somebody who will get up and sing on on stage and and do pretty well when I do it. Yeah. And I actually got to acknowledge that fellow just today because of uh, we reconnected on Facebook after wow, over 30 years. That's really exciting. That's of course he has no recollection of this moment, but to me it's <laughs> like it just happened. I I I mention that guy all the time, so it's pretty funny. Well, I think that's wonderful. I think that's really great. I think we all have people like that in our past. It probably influenced who we ultimately became. Some in very positive ways, maybe some in not so positive ways. Sure, absolutely. But those are the great stories, the ones where people empowered you to take on something that you had dreamed about but maybe had been scared or fearful of completely owning. It took took a 30-second conversation to change everything. Yeah, well, it's really interesting that you would say that because one of the things that I say in my book is that the stages, even though it's like one-third of, bo- of my book to talk through the stages of a major life change, mm-hmm. I also say that you can go through all six of those stages in one day. You know, it's not time-specific. Sometimes we go through major change, and it takes years. But other times... The right moment, the right time, the right opening, the right person, the right conversation, and you transform literally mm-hmm. thirty seconds to a minute. And yeah, that, I think that's. I think uh, that thing that gets to the power of coaching. Sure. Right, because sometimes a coaching conversation can be so life changing, and it's it, it can be one conversation. Well, I think also the idea of transformation. Transformation may take a lot of work. It may take a lot of shifting. It may take a lot of trauma or not. But most of the time, the the actual act of the transformation is it takes place almost in a moment. There's like something that went from once all of a sudden you're here, and all the things that just kind of came together, and, and now it's not. It's just something completely changed, and that. In that second, right, right. It's like it's like all the stuff we do to get to it 
that's the work, and then when it happens, it's, it's it can sometimes be in an instant. Yeah, and interestingly enough, it can sometimes lead to disappointment. Mm. For example, well, I think a lot of the time we have, you know, we build up goals and we set our sights on achieving something, and then when we achieve it, all of a sudden we realize that we still have to get out of bed the next day. <laughs> yeah, what's up with that? So what's up with that? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was funny because I had that experience very recently, having just published my first book, and it was a major realization of a dream for me. And I had, you know, the book launch party, and I had the big, I had the exciting, the whole breakout with the publicity and everything, and then the night of the book launch party, the very next day, <clears throat> you know, I just could have woke up in the morning and it was like, okay, so that's done. Need to go on to the next thing. <laughs> mm. And I realized that, you know, that's the way life works, right? Sure. You know, I mean, we do get we get ourselves excited and set goals, but we're never finished. We're always moving on to the next thing. I, I don't know if you remember. This, I don't know if this is actually the kind of movie you might have ever seen. It was a uh, early. Um, what's, uh, I can't even think of the guy's name. The movie called uh, "Who Moved?" Uh, who, it was "Who Moved My Car?" or something like that. Dude, dude, you moved my car. I don't know, can't even think of the title. And there was this um, this uh, re- a Chinese um, restaurant where you would order from at the window in, from your car. And you would say, you know, I like uh, uh, two egg rolls. And then uh, um, I'll have some uh, some some soup. And then, and it was no matter what they said, it was constantly. And then they kind of felt under pressure to come up with another thing to order. And and I I think about that um, when you're talking about when you reach your goals, you 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 have this big goal you've reached, and then. Right, you know, and then it's like, so what next? <laughs> now what? Yeah, exactly. I'm here. What do we do now? Okay, well, we dance around for a few seconds. Right. So, well, um, I think, I think mm-hmm. that's why, I think that's one of the challenges that coaches grapple with with their clients is helping people stay in a space of gratitude for what they have. Yes. At the same time that they are holding on to their aspirations and setting goals and practicing to create something new. It's an interesting dynamic to do both at the same time. Got it. It's like you, it, it's, a, it's a similar, you know, when you first started your show tonight, you announced that you've been on the, on the air for a year. It's actually over a year, over but it's, year. you know, I've done 50 shows over, starting in March of 2009. Yeah, so... You know, and had something like 10,000 people download the, the show, and which is a great accomplishment. 11,320. <laughs> Not that there I'm counting. Go. There you go. <laughs> so, so, and that's something you should be very proud of. I am. And be celebrating. I am. And at the same time, I bet there's another part of you that's like, okay, so I want 250,000 listeners, and I want, you know. Sure. Whatever it is. So, it's it's. It's the same thing for all of us, right? It's we set goals and we want to achieve them, but we also have to take take stock and breathe and accept where we are 
and be grateful for what we do have. Yeah, and it really just kind of hit me today. That's why I just really wanted to thank those people who listen. And it never, it, it always amazes me. Several times a week, somebody comes along and downloads sometimes every single show. I mean, I've had days where all of a sudden there's whatever number of shows I have, that's the number of increases in downloads. I'm going, somebody actually wanted to listen to every one of my shows. That's pretty amazing. Well, they may want to listen, yeah, to the whole thing, like one one after another. Yeah. And they really be in a, in a space where they need that kind of support. And that's so. and that's great. So I thank them, and of course, they're all the people who have made this. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the 49, now the 50 guests who have made this so. possible. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a wonderful accomplishment, and well, I'm you. sure you have aspiration for more. Absolutely. So, and that's and that's the kind of tension that we hold as coaches with our clients, right? Sure. How do you find a balance between being grateful for where you are and being being awake in the present moment, mm-hmm. but also staying? intentional about creating an even more powerful or more enriching experience in the future. Yeah, and that, and that can be a challenge. Yeah. Oh, I think it is a challenge because I think a lot of the time people are very, very caught in the past mm-hmm. or very, very obsessed with the future and they're not in the present at all. So, I think of, you know, there's a, you know, Saturday Night Live, I'm sure you've watched over the years. Oh, yeah. And the one thing about them is every time they find something that works, they milk it to death. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. And it just reminded me somehow of that, where you, you get to this place, we have, we have found something that works, and let's just keep doing this, as opposed to let's what's next, what else can we do? How How else can we really continue to serve the people who listen to us, watch the show. But, I mean, that's the paradox that we all grapple with, right? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. look, at any, look at any American product, right? Hollywood mm-hmm. movies, Shrek 1, Shrek 2, Shrek 3. <laughs> oh, no, Shrek 1, Shrek 2, Drek 3. Yeah, exactly. Drek is, is the last one. What are we up to the now? What are we on now? The eighth or ninth Harry Potter movie? You know, so. uh, he, I think he's uh, Harry Potter's on social security now, or something. Yeah, he has grand, he has grandchildren by grandchildren now. Grandchildren and well, it's like Rocky sixteen. You know, it's the same yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, that's part of the that, that's endemic to our culture. This idea of you know when something works, you milk it, and um, there's something to be said for that, I suppose, because it's taking something that people like and it's stretching it and expanding it and giving them more of it. So on the one hand, it's a good thing. It can be. To your point, it's also a way of getting really comfortable with what's known and not looking for something new and innovative. It's that old, you know, the law of diminishing returns and all that. Exactly. Exactly. So I wanted to, uh, I've I've written down a a number of things to uh, talk to you about in your book, including uh, early on we talk about self and the cloak of identity, which sounds very mysterious. The cloak. It sounds like a like a like a movie title, actually. Harry ah. Potter and the Cloak of Identity. As a matter of fact. There you go. <laughs> well, I'll have to hold on to that one then, for future reference. Ah, yes. 
So tell so what, what, what's, what's the cloak of identity? Yeah, exactly. What what is the question about it? Anything in particular that? You're no, I'd like you to share a little bit about that. You know, we're, but I always want to talk to somebody who uh, and remind you that not everyone has looked at this. So we're going to start from as if as if you're talking to a complete um, stranger. Well, I think that the key here is that one of the core premises for me in writing the book that I discovered in working with my clients over the years, and also for myself, is this question of whether or not the self, as we consider it, is etched in stone, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, do we really know who we are? And what, when you get into that question, and try not to get too philosophical about it, but when you think about it just in terms of the, the kinds of identities and labels that we use to describe ourselves, mm -hmm. what we realize is that it's a constantly moving target. You know, the way we thought of ourselves 20 years ago versus the way we think of ourselves today, it's constantly changing. You're constantly shifting. Mm. And one of the ways that we can use that in a positive way is to recognize that you can constantly reinvent yourself along the way. If you, if you come to see that your sense of self, your, as I called it, the cloak of identity, your sense of roles and titles and labels, that they're all constructed. They're not inherently you. You know, if you were to put together a little list of what you consider yourself to be, a coach, a professional, a radio host, an apartment owner, um, you know, dog owner, whatever it is, those are all labels that you have. They're all forms, they're, they're all parts of your identity. Right. But they're not etched in stone. They're, they're changeable. Mm -hmm. And that is really what is the baseline for starting to realize that you can reinvent yourself. You know, there's a line from a recent CNN that was so potent for me. You remember you said a few minutes ago how about some, sometimes one conversation can be transformational? Mm -hmm. Well, there was this one conversation on CNN with Anderson Cooper um, maybe a year and a half ago, and he was interviewing people that had been laid off from General Motors, and there was this one woman who was about to lose her job after working at General Motors for 30 years. And he was interviewing her about how it felt. And I'll always remember what she said. She basically looked at him, and she looked right into the camera, and she said, I won't know who I am without General Motors. Wow. And I thought that was really profound. Because if you think about it, if you're so attached to your job that without your job you don't know who you are, that's a setup for extreme dislocation when those jobs come and go, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a time in our country, and that's why when you think about General Motors, I mean, it, re it just represents a whole different time. 20 or 30 years ago, it would have been perfectly normal for someone to work for General Motors for 30 years. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, they live and breathe. They're factory, they work there their whole lives, and that's part of their identity. But in today's world... We can expect to have, I don't know, ten different jobs, five different careers. It's pretty rare to have a 30-year job anywhere anymore. And you don't hear exactly about too many gold watches. No, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> 
So that's exactly what I wanted to write about, was now that the world has changed and we have to become much more fluid and capable of letting go of those attachments and moving on to new jobs and new identities because the old ones keep getting taken away from us or we might even choose to let them go, how do we get better at that? So the, one of the first steps in doing that, and I think it's a core to any kind of good coaching, is to help people see that they're not, they're much more than their identities. They're much more than their, their labels and their attachments. That they, they're all changeable. That's why I call it the cloak of identity, because it's really a cloak. It's not who you really are. It's what you wear. You know, it's like a robe you're wearing or a costume. It's not, it's not your, your authentic self. Now, are there parts of your self that are really not very changeable? Well, you know, that's a really good question, and I have to say that one's probably open to debate. I think it depends on who you ask. Um, I mean, I, I, would, I would say the answer to the question is probably yes, there are. But it gets pretty difficult to narrow down what that is, right? Like what part of yourself is completely unchangeable? Maybe some of your values, some of what you most care about, those kinds of things. Yes, I know that they say certain characteristics of, of, of a person are kind of wired in at birth almost. Like you, whether you will be a, uh, a gregarious type or a, a leader type, a bossy type. And I don't know if that's true. Well, you know, I think that's been, that continues to be debated. It continues to be debated. I think that um, be hard-pressed to prove any of that. I would say that most scientists and most psychologists would agree that there's a predisposition mm -hmm. to certain traits, but to say that it's hardwired and unchangeable, mm, I think that's questionable. Okay. I don't know. It's, you'd have if you had five different psychologists on the line right now, we'd probably all have <laughs> five different opinions. <laughs> well, actually, that's my show next week. <laughs> No, it's not. I think I would. And then if you were to get a neuroscientist or a genetics specialist, or, wow. you know, then you'd have a whole lot of debate about all that. But <clears throat> Well, that sounds scary, so I'm not, I'm not going to have that show. Yeah, and I'm not going to try to make any major pronouncements as if I'm, you know, as if I'm the expert on it. All I will say is that I think there probably are certain elements to us that are unchangeable. But the point that I try to make in my book is that the vast majority of what you see yourself as can be changed. Right. And that's a good thing. Because that gives you so much freedom to constantly reinvent yourself. It's, it, it, it's the theme that it's never too late. You know, it's never too late to become a singer. It's never too late to become an artist. It's never too late to become whatever it was that you always dreamed of being. That's right. Remember Grandma Moses? Uh-huh. She yeah. was a senior citizen when she took up painting and became world-renowned. There you go. Well, that's exactly right. So that's, that's the core premise of where I started Shift. And what is the quantum self? Well, that's similarly. It's along those same lines. I think in that chapter in the beginning of the book, I look at the self from a variety of different angles. 
and quantum physics is one of the ways that a lot of people use to kind of have a lens or a way of seeing in today's world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the simple way of understanding the quantum view of things is that it's not as black and white anymore as the Newtonian science would have. You know, subject, object, you know, you're looking down a, you're looking through a microscope and you're seeing the exact thing. Right. I think quantum, quantum physics has proven that it's much more complex. When you get into the quantum level, it's all probability. It's all movement. And so it, it just shows how there's much more creativity in the universe than we ever thought possible. So the, the, the core premise of quantum physics is just how much creativity there is, how much space there is, that things, things can change. And mm-hmm. as you said even earlier, you know, things can change in an instant. So that's what quantum physics proves. Yeah, uh, quantum physics has really started to become more in the in the realm of something that the average person might start to get an understanding from, thanks to book books like The Secret. Yeah, exactly, and that's why I included a little bit of a little taste taste of it in my book. You know, I didn't want to write a scientific tome. My book doesn't have a whole lot about quantum physics in it, but it does have. You know, what I wanted to do is to try to connect what I was saying about psychology and about the self and about change and I wanted to connect it to what's going on in science because there's a lot of books out there about neuroscience and the brain and quantum physics and the fact that things that the fundamental theme of all of those books is the same which is that things are much more changeable than we ever thought possible you know the brain is and the, uh, the way we think is much more powerful and much more malleable, much more changeable than we ever thought. Mm. So. I'm going to remind anyone listening live right now, if you'd like to call in with a question for Dr. Hull, 646-929-2893 is the number. Okay. <laughs> We're back live. <laughs> Not that we weren't. Um, you have some very interesting tests and evaluation that you've Evaluations you put into this book to really—I mean, I guess that's what you when you're referring to a program where you could really uh, get some shifting going on right there. Right. What are the, what are some of the ones that you think are the most powerful here? Well, I think there's basically two things. Um, there's there's two key parts of the book. The first part is practices to help you move through fear or to help you transform your relationship with your fear. So. You know, looking at anxiety, stress, worry, whatever your symptoms are in feeling fearful. And one of the themes that I try to tackle in the book is that we can't change our experience of fear just through our thinking. Mm-hmm. You have to include the body and the feelings. And so it's important to get to know yourself physically and emotionally as well as mentally. So one of the exercises that I have in the book is is a whole series of diagnostics where you can get to know whether or not you are fundamentally oriented toward being more mental in your experience of fear, more physical, you know, it shows up more in, in physical symptoms, or more mm-hmm. emotional. And, I, I mean, we all have all three. Right. But getting to know what your sort of um, stronger affinity is 
helps you know where you're going to want to look for the exercises to help you move through the fear. So if, you're, if you turn out to be more physically oriented, more somat, what I call somatically oriented, mm -hmm. then exercises around physical movement are going to be the thing that's probably going to be the most helpful for you in moving through your fear. Yeah, and I think I'm one of those people. Like right. when I was referring to the time I first got up on stage and my knees was bouncing up and down like crazy. And for years, every time I did perform, it doesn't happen anymore, but I, I used to get ill before, every time I'd just about go on. Yeah. Ill in my stomach. And so now do you have some sort of physical exercise or breathing exercise or something that you do to help move I'm not that? aware of, if, I, if I'm doing it, it's, it's, not even, it's not even conscious. It's just, I think it's just... I've done it enough times that I, I, I already know I'm not going to die. <laughs> yeah, so you've just adjusted to it over time. Yeah, over time. Eventually, it eventually became uh, kind of a second nature thing. Although I still get those kind of feelings if I'm going to speak as opposed to if I'm going to sing. Right. I'm, I haven't yeah, not I mean, yet mastered really public common. speaking in the same way. I think that's fairly common for a lot of people, that they have a physical reaction. But um, what, I'm, what I'm talking about a lot in the book also is not so much specific fear reactions like from public speaking or um, something that's, that's kind of obviously going to create fear, mm -hmm. but more like when you're going through a major change in your life and you don't even know you're necessarily fearful. You just know you have symptoms. It's, tr it's, it's part of what I try to offer in the book is ways for us to connect what's going on in our lives to when we're feeling fear. Right. And one of the ways we do that is by getting to know whether or not we're feeling it physically or emotionally or mentally. And so that's what some of those exercises are helpful for. I've been, I, I, over the years, I've been kind of amazed at the number of times that I've been, you may have run into this with clients, when I've been with a client and having a conversation with them about how they're feeling about what they're going through, whether it's a big career change or a relationship drama. And they can describe either a whole bunch of physical symptoms or a whole bunch of emotional symptoms, but they wouldn't necessarily say they were feeling fearful. They don't necessarily connect it to fear. Hmm. Even though when they were prompted to think about it that way, in most cases, they're able to see the connection between it. So a lot of the time when we are in a very, in, in kind of a traumatized or painful period of our lives, we don't always make the connection to see that it has some kind of connection to fear. So that's what I was trying to do in the book, is helping uh -huh. people to make the connection. Because it's only when you begin to realize that you're scared that then you can begin to work on moving through it. In situations where you're getting up to perform, like you know, singing or giving a presentation, I think it's pretty obvious that you're fearful. Most people would say, I'm feeling scared or I'm feeling anxious, and they, they know that it's fear. But in a situation where you're breaking up with your significant other or you're, you're scared, you're feeling all sorts of anxiety about committing to a relationship or you're about to start a new job and you're feeling 
a whole bunch of different feelings about your new boss, you might not automatically realize that what you're feeling is fear. Mm. Are there actually people who are fearless? <laughs> what a great question. Um, I haven't met one. I mean, I think there are people that handle fear extremely well with a great deal of wisdom. Um, I think of people like Pema Chodron, the great spiritual teacher. Mm-hmm. Deepak Chopra. You know, people like that probably handle their fear in a really grounded um, way with very little ego. But totally fearless? Hmm. Did you see The Godfather? The movie? Yeah. Uh, probably 20 years ago, yeah. What comes to mind from talking about fearless was this moment where Michael Corleone realizes that when he has to deal with uh, uh, killing somebody, I think it was, or, or some violent act, that his hand was not at all shaking. And the guy trying to light his cigarette, his hand was shaking like crazy. Mm. And it was that moment where he realized, yeah, not a problem. That he was fearless? He was fearless, at least in that in, in that arena. Yeah. And, of course, I mean, that's a movie character, so... Well, it's not only a movie character, it's probably a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So a sociopath, would that be? A sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd have to say there probably are people out there that are totally fearless, and they are, for the most part, sociopaths. So that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> so if you are completely fearless, you might want to see somebody about that. <laughs> Yeah, but you'd probably be the last one to ever do it, right? Ah, uh, of course. Yeah. So that's the that's the paradox about that diagnosis. Now, like uh that's why it's why psychologists say that working with a narcissistic person is the most difficult client. Because you know, a really extreme narcissism is also similar to sociopath. Hmm. You know, complete self-absorption. Why would you want to see a therapist, right? Because just being in, with a coach or a therapist requires you to be in some form of relationship with another person. Right. And if you're a real, true narcissist, you're not capable of being in a relationship with another person. So you're probably pretty fearless, too. That's, that's in fact, you know, I don't want to get too psychological on you, but it, you did ask the question, you know, is there such a thing as a fearless person? It's actually a pretty dangerous place to become totally fearless. Because in some ways you're then disconnected from the real world. Mm. Right? Sure. Because the real world is not without its dangers. So. If fear does have, have a place, there's, a, there's a reason we have it. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, that's one of the, one of the themes of my book is that fear is a good thing. A, it's a motivator, but we have unfortunately kind of split it off in our culture. You know, we go to the movies, watch scary movies, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that we get our dose of fear in, a sa- in the safety of a movie theater. 
And um, I think that in many ways, perfectly natural anxiety and fear is, is not a bad thing. And how is it a motivator? Well, like recognizing that part of anxiety is the energy of excitement. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. The energy of enthusiasm is the same exact feeling as the energy of fear. They're both they're both adrenaline rushing. And they can be both positive and negative. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. A lot of it is how you frame it, is how you see it. It's like you it's like you you up in front of the when you're singing, you know, you took that nervous energy and ultimately turned it into a motivational motivational energy. Mm-hmm. You turned it into excitement. You don't try to make it you don't try to fight it, you try to use it. I think that's yeah. great great. I mean the best the best performances have uh, uh come out of that excitement. Exactly. Exactly. And speaking of performances, now when most people think of the king of pop, they think of Michael Jackson, but you have another name for the king. I do? You do. <laughs> Remind me. Oh, man, I, I, thought, I thought you would know what I was talking about. You mean from the book? Yes. Anger. Yes, sir, you are correct, yeah. sir. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anger, the king of pop. <laughs> That's right. I had to I had to to say that when I saw that. I wrote that down. <laughs> yeah, I mean because the thing about anger is that it's it's to me in most cases it's the ultimate ultimate expression of fear gone awry. You know, in most cases anger is an eruption of fear. Mhm. Projection of fear. So it's just you know one more example of where if we could learn to be more connected to our fears and have a more healthy relationship with our fears, then we would probably have less anger and more calm. Well, as we say in the coaching biz, tell me more. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, when people lose their cool, right? Yeah. A lot of the time, I'm not going to say it's every single time, but I know for myself, a lot of the time when I lose my cool, it has to do with my losing control of my desire to control my world, mm. right? You know, when the guy cuts you off in the road or you get in that checkout line and it's not w- moving quick enough and you get pissed off and you get, you know, irritable, I mean, a lot of that has to do with the f- your fear that you're not controlling your world. You're out of control. So a lot of our angry responses to the world are about our need to try to control things, which is a fear, you know, of feeling out of control. How many times have you been in a checkout line when you had 10 minutes to get to the movies and the person in front of you is fiddling and not not getting to their money and or they decide they don't want what they have and you're standing there and you're looking at your watch and it's like, oh my God, I've got to get to the movies. I've only got 10 minutes. I'm going to be late. You know, and eventually if it gets bad enough, you blow up, right? Oh, no, never. Not, not, not I. 
not you, but that, not me. But oh, of course not us, but <laughs> mortal mortals, people, mortal people. There, there are those who have been known. Yes, those are those who have been known. <laughs> Present company accepted. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, anyway, that's what I mean by the king of pop. It's ultimately a, it's a fear response. Hmm. Because your fear of losing control. And, and so, what? what so, do you have tools for that, uh, or uh, specific ways of dealing with it, or is this the overall result of having done some kind of work? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, in my book, I have a lot of practices that are meditation practices and yoga practices and things like that that are ultimately designed to help people be quieter, more present, more grounded be less likely to ca- be caught up in that kind of need to control, give you an ability to step back and observe yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, the most powerful tool of all in situations like that is to have a, the ability to watch yourself, you know, that observer mm-hmm. stance. And that comes from having a meditation practice. Um, so all of those kinds of practices are described in my book, and they're all useful to help create a space so that you're, you're less likely to lash out. But what I was really trying to do with writing about that was to, to help people understand a little bit differently about what, what anger is about. And, um, and tr- draw the connection between anger and fear. Okay. Yeah. And speaking of tools... You have a bunch of interesting tools, which I uh, notice are some of them are the, at the heart of coaching, such as refocusing, reframing, realigning, yeah. response dash ability. Right. And, th- and those are great tools. And so you are now here uh, introducing those tools to to the reader. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine you use some of the same kinds of things. I know when I was all the time. Yeah, when I was teaching the workshop on coaching through fear, I had, you know, a room full of coaches, and we all used various variations of these kinds of things with our clients. So I think they can be very helpful. Um, and, and fundamentally what you're trying to do is shift the perspective that people have to help them move through their beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah let go of attachments and beliefs, things that get in the way, obstacles that get in the way of moving forward. So they're all different. Basically, they're, they're just different ways of attacking that same kind of problem, I think. Is there, is there a particular tool that you resonated with or that you use with your clients? I use, well, reframing and, and perspective in particular. I've, give, I've given talks about it, mm-hmm. and it's, it's always interesting when... You, when you show people, you can start to define for people what perspective really is and how they can see different things in a different way. Um, I've done it where I've had a very tall person and a very short person. I've had them kind of switch places. Now, I, I once had the very most interesting experience. It was in a large group of uh, a couple, it was actually a couple of hundred men in, 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 a, in a place where um, there were steps. Uh, on the outside of the circle, and I was standing about three or four steps up, and I was, you know, looking uh, above. I was like above the crowd, right? 
and I'm seeing things in a particular way, and all these people are, are below me, then I noticed that there was this one man who was really, really, really tall, and he was eye to eye with me. And I realized in that moment that that's what that man sees all the time is what I was seeing from the top of the steps. Like this is what his life looks like. Mm. And it totally changed how I saw him because I realized this is, this, he walks through life seeing people as if we were standing on a box, on a large box. Yeah. You know, the tops of everybody's heads and right. he has to like bend down to say hello to people. Not everybody, I mean, but a lot of people, it's a, you know, it's hello down there, you know. It, it gave me a completely different perspective for him. That's great. And I've, I've used that. You know, you know that famous picture of the, is this an old woman or a, or a young woman? Right, yep. Yeah, where you're kind of looking at, and it's, it can also be a wine glass. Right or something like that. I th- possibly, yeah. Yeah. But certainly, it's like you know, and you you if you ask ten people, you're going to get a whole bunch of different. No, that's a young woman. No, that's an old lady. Right. And you stare at it long enough, it's like, oh yeah. Yeah, and it, and it's funny how that becomes a simple variation of a, of the exact same theme that you work with clients that are going through like a really profound change in their lives. Mm-hmm like losing their job or deciding to leave their job. You know, it's like, is it the worst thing that it could ever happen to you or could it be the best thing that ever happened to you? It could be either way. Now, guess what? We are down to two minutes. Would you believe it? I would. Amazing. It went fast. Live. <laughs> That's right, live. I was going to talk about the exercising your shoulds and give you the Tony Robbins quote that I love. But, um, oh, well, give it. Do you have it quickly? Oh, that's the. the, the you, if you uh, have too many shoulds, you're going to should all over yourself. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's my favorite, my favorite Tony Robbins line. Uh, but I, uh, first of all, tell everyone where they can find you and what's next and all that good stuff. Um, they can find me at www.jeffreyhull.com or www.life-shifting.com. And they can find various events and additional radio things that I'm doing on that website. And uh, there's a webinar coming up that I'm doing for entrepreneurs on the 28th of July. And, um, yeah, so that's probably the best thing to do. They can find out information about the book and where to buy it, obviously at all the usual spots, the Barnes and Nobles and Amazons of the world. Mm-hmm. So. And you can also get it right on the show page. There's a link to the book on Amazon. And uh, and great. So thank you, Dr. Jeffrey Hull, for some wonderful information. And I want to thank everyone for listening. You can find me at www.myfuturecoach.com. Follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash coachandrew. And we'll be back next week with Deb Scott, author of The Sky is Green and the Grass is Blue, Have an outstanding next seven days, and good night.